Today is a very special day, a very special weekend at the Summit Church at all of our campuses in the Triangle. This is one of those days throughout the year that we offer you an immediate chance to be baptized if you never have been. The New Testament command to follow Jesus is very simply, believe and be baptized, Mark 16, 15. And some of you listening to me at a different campus here at the Summit Church, some of you have believed, but you've never yet been baptized. Baptism, we always try to make clear, is not the same thing as salvation. Salvation happens when you simply trust Christ as Lord and Savior, but baptism is a very important sign that you have been saved. That's why we often compare it to the ring that you put on after you say your wedding vows to show the world that you are married. For some of you, it is like you have said your wedding vows to Jesus, but you've never actually put on the ring. You say, well, it's the vows that are the most important, and I agree. But try telling your new spouse right after you get married that you just don't feel like wearing the ring. Uh, it's not going to turn out well for you. My wife, a couple years ago, I, I told you that uh, she came to me because she said, you know, sometimes you go places, uh, you can't wear your wedding ring, like to the gym or to the, you know, pool or something like that. And uh, she has this illusion. I told her it is purely an illusion that when I'm not wearing my wedding ring, that some girl thinks I'm single and they come up and they hit on me. And I tell her, I, this never happened, not a single time in my life um, have I ever been at the gym. In fact, I'm much less appealing at the gym because I'm so weak and awkward looking that nobody even messes with me there. So, but she said, you know, I just feel better about it. So um, I, uh, you know, just an honor to her, go out and I got a little tattoo on my finger that has her initial on it. So even when I'm not wearing my ring, I'm still showing the sign uh, because if a mama wants you to do something like that, then that's just what you do. Uh, and so I got the tattoo there. Uh, and some people have said to me like, well, what happens if she leaves you or what if she dies? Well, I've told you that if she leaves me, I've told her that I'm going with her. So uh, that takes care of that. And uh, secondly, if she dies, I it's a V for Veronica, but I told her I can flip it over to A for available, and then that takes care of that <laughs> issue as well. So, um, but the point is, uh, when you love somebody and you are committed to them, you are not afraid to put on the sign of your commitment to them. And some of you, while you believe in Jesus and you even love Jesus, you've never put on the sign of baptism. You say, well, I didn't come prepared today to do something like that. That is okay. As always, we are prepared for you. We have everything that you will need. We have these modest, stylish black shorts and these black t-shirts that say Jesus in my place on them, uh, which by the way is yours to keep that t-shirt um, if you want to, to do that. Um, and we will offer you some time toward the end of the service before you get baptized where we can talk with you and answer any questions that you might have, or um, we'll have a few questions that we want to ask you. Um, the point is, this is going to be an extremely important moment for many of you. In my observation, I have seen that the decision to get baptized often makes the difference between a passing religious phase and a defining moment that transforms your life and alters your eternity. Um, and so this is a very important moment for a lot of people, and we're going to ask you to join the dozens, I haven't gotten a, a total number yet, but dozens already in the previous services that have, um, have made this decision to be baptized. And so that's coming at the end of the message. I just wanted to give you a heads up so that you could begin to get mentally prepared for it, okay? A few of you, your heart is beating a little faster right now because you think, he's talking to me. And you're exactly right. I'm talking to you. Okay. Um, Galatians chapter three, if you got your Bible this weekend, I want you to open it to Galatians chapter three. I am very excited about the message today. Um, this is one of my favorite short passages in all of the letters of the apostle Paul, because Paul is going to get a little salty here with the Galatians. And that's when I think Paul is at his best, when he's getting a little frisky and he's a little irritated. Um, so as you're turning to Galatians three, imagine with me for a minute, 
that you are one of those consultants who gets hired by a company that is about to go under and you are brought in to turn that company around. And so you take on the case of a company that has just declared bankruptcy, um, but as you really get into the weeds and you start to look at their assets, you discover that they actually have a great product. The reason they're going bankrupt is not because of a deficiency in their product, it's because the CEO is corrupt and incompetent. Their ledger is a veritable litany of bad decisions and fiscal mismanagement and corruption and nepotism and discrimination and embezzlement and just about any other kind of bad business practice you can come up with. But all the CEO wants in your meetings with him, all he wants is for you to find a way to get the company back in the black so that he can carry on business as usual. Well, if you were to make a report to the board of directors, you would probably say something like this. Listen, your debt is the least of your problems right now. You need to fire this corrupt CEO and you need to bring in a new one. Simply throwing money at this problem is not going to fix it unless you change the corruption underneath this problem. The company needs not only to have its debt removed, it needs to have an entirely new operating procedure. Well, see, that is very similar to the point that Paul begins to make in Galatians chapter three. Our salvation had to be more than simply having our sin debt removed. And that is because our sin had done more than simply leave us guilty before God. It had also left us utterly unable to live the Christian life. That is why so many of us struggle to make relationships work even after we become Christians. It's why many of us still cannot find that elusive peace and sense of happiness and calm or satisfaction that we have always yearned for. You see, we need not only to be given a clean record before God, we also need to be released from sin's power. And Paul says that this also is a gift of God that is accessed by faith alone in Christ. And this is what many of you, if I could be so humble and bold at the same time, this is what many of you have yet to grasp. You have grasped Christ alone as your forgiveness provider, but you have not yet grasped Christ alone as your righteousness producer. You believe salvation is by faith alone, but you think sanctification or growth in Christ, that that is all up to you. The essence of salvation, Paul says, though, is you in Christ and Christ in you. You in Christ, where you stand in Christ's righteousness, his righteousness has been applied to your account, but also Christ in you, where his resurrection power becomes the source of your spiritual life. Paul's summation of all of this is Galatians 2.20, where we ended last week. It is a verse you definitely should have memorized and one that is reflected in that little uh, gospel prayer bookmark I gave to you. Um, Basically, the phrases of that gospel prayer arise right out of Galatians 2.20. Here's what Paul says. Here's who I am in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I who lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. Now watch this. The life I now live in the body the growth I have in Christ, the spiritual life I'm living. I'm living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so now that leads us into chapter three where we're gonna pick up. And here's how Paul starts chapter three. You foolish Galatians. Uh, This is why I told you Paul gets a little salty here. Um, And J.B. Phillips' translation of this from Greek, um, he just translates it as you idiots. You idiots, which I think is probably a little closer to what Paul was feeling at the moment. You idiots, who has bewitched you? 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, at one point you understood the gospel so clearly. It was like Jesus had died right in front of you. It's like you were there and you had seen his wounds and you'd heard him from the cross declare, it is finished. And at one point you understood it so clearly, but now it's like you've completely, it's like you've completely forgotten that. Verse 2, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by believing what you have heard? Now, this is really important because this is the first time the Apostle Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in Galatians, and the Holy Spirit is going to become his primary theme for the next four chapters. And here is his question. Listen, how did you first receive the Spirit? Did you first receive the Spirit because you did something? Was it because you ate something or did not eat something? Was it because you went through some ritual? No, it happened because you put faith in the finished work of Christ. Well, then he said, after beginning by the Spirit, do you now think you're going to finish by the flesh? Does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Here is the game-changing question. If you initially received the Spirit by believing, why would you think growing in the Spirit would be achieved in any other way? Why would God start our salvation by faith in His provision, but then expect us to grow by us grabbing a hold of our bootstraps and pulling ourselves up through obedience to the law? No, He says, the way we grow in the Christian life is the same way we begin in the Christian life through faith in Christ's finished work. The words, it is finished, you see, listen, are not just words that we believe one time to find forgiveness. They are words we believe again and again to experience spiritual power. The first time we believe the words, it is finished, we were released from the penalty of sin. As we continue to believe them, we are released from the power of sin. Now, let's pause here for a moment because I've told you before, um, as Paul ties all of this to the Holy Spirit, I've told you that most Christians in churches like ours are not really exactly sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, we know Christians who seem obsessed with the Holy Spirit. He is this mystical force that is always revealing himself through warm, fuzzy feelings and strange coincidences. Oh, pastor, I was praying about whether or not to ask this girl out. And as I was driving home, I looked up and there was a billboard. And the same color of the billboard was the same color as her eyes. And the last two digits of the phone number on the billboard were the same as her age. And just at that minute, my favorite Christian song came on K-Love and Jehovah Jireh. I just knew the Holy Spirit was telling me to ask her out. And you're like, I'm not sure that was the Holy Spirit telling you to ask her out. It sounds to me like the preamble to a restraining order, so I'd be really, really careful with that one. Or, or you've heard Christians that received the Holy Spirit encounters that just seem kind of mystical and weird. Um, before I became a pastor, um, I was at a pastor's conference. It was with a world-renowned, I guess you would call him a Pentecostal preacher, um, that everybody was very famous, and there was only about 150 of us there. And at the end of his talk, he said, hey, if anybody wants to receive more of the Holy Spirit, would you come forward and I'll lay my hands on you and you can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm always one for more of the Holy Spirit. We didn't have a, a, you know, a, a class on this in seminary, so I thought, absolutely. So I come down there, and there's a row of about 20 of us, and he starts on one end, and he is praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And um, I noticed that as he does it, they, they fall backwards. Um, but I was like number 13 or 14 in line. I noticed that the closer he got to me, 
um, I was watching, I was like, it sure looks to me like he is pushing them down. And so I said to God, he's about two people ahead of me. I said, Lord, you can do whatever you want to me. If you want to knock me down, that's fine. If you want to knock my shirt off and tattoo Jesus loves me to my chest, I will receive that in Jesus' name. But I am not going to let that man push me down. Um, and so he comes up to me and he puts his hand on my forehead and he starts to pray. And as he prays and it gets more intense, I can feel the pressure of his hand pushing me back. And I was like, bro, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is you. Um, and so he starts pushing me and I, so I start pushing back. He like, you know, we're having this moment here. And uh, eventually he muttered something probably about me being stiff-necked or whatever, and he moved on to the next person. Um, but, 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 but you think that that's really what it's like to have this encounter with the Holy Spirit. Well, there are other Christians in churches probably like ours who in reaction to that, we just kind of ignore the Holy Spirit altogether. And we believe that he exists, but we're not exactly sure what to do with him. I, a couple of years ago, I preached on the Holy Spirit and I explained to you that most Christians in churches like ours relate to the Holy Spirit the same way that I relate to my pituitary gland, right? I know it's in there somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where to point, by the way. Um, I know it's in there somewhere. Uh, I know it's really important and for something. I don't want to be without it, but I don't really know what it does and I don't really relate to it. Um, that's the way they are at the Holy Spirit. You're like, I know he's in there rattling around somewhere and I know he's important for something, but I'm not exactly sure what he does and I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to relate to him. In churches like ours, we say we believe in the Trinity, but actually the Trinity that we would believe in would be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We're not sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. Um, the Apostle Paul would point us away from both of those kinds of um, interpretations of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit for him is very real. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is the person who lives inside of you. He is absolutely essential to the Christian's life. He is Christ in you, the way that you live the Christian life. Yet he is not accessed, listen to this, through weird mystical ceremonies. And he's not experienced primarily through a random confluence of circumstances. His ongoing power in us is released in us through renewed faith in the gospel. As we continue to put faith in the finished work of Christ, the power of the Spirit is continually released in us. Or think of it this way, by believing it is finished, we gain the power to continue. By believing it's finished, you gain the power in the Christian life to continue. The fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. That is why we so often say around here that the deeper you go into the gospel, the wider, the higher, and the farther you will go in obedience. The way to progress in the Christian life, Martin Luther said, is always to begin again. If you want to grow in Christ, you don't go beyond the gospel. You go back to the beginning and you go deeper into the gospel. The deeper you go into the gospel, the farther and higher and wider you will go into obedience. Uh, you, you see this in one of the best pictures in the Bible of what salvation is. Um, the book of Numbers, it talks about Israel sinning and as a consequence, God sent this um, fiery serpents in there, which bit the Israelites, and, and it was extremely painful, and many began to die, and so they cried out to God for mercy, and God told Moses to take a, a, an image of a serpent, a bronze image, and put it up on a pole, and put the pole up on top of a hill, and to tell the Israelites that whoever would crawl to that hill and look upward in faith, believing that salvation and healing belong to God, that as they looked and as they believed, they would be healed. 
That is a picture, Jesus said, John 3, of how you and I obtain forgiveness as we look at Jesus on the cross and we say, there is my salvation. And when you believe that, his righteousness is imputed to you. But here's what Paul is saying in Galatians 3. As you continue to look at that, as you continue to believe it is finished, then the healing power of righteousness will begin to be infused into you. That is the way that you grow in the Christian life. Think of it like one of those new cell phone batteries where it doesn't have a, a, a cord that check connects it to the, to the charger. It just charges when you place it on the charger. Christians receive spiritual life-changing power when they are resting on the cross. So when you want to grow spiritually, when you are frustrated at the lack of spiritual fruit in your life, you come back to the cross. You come back to the message that it is finished and you rest there. And you thank God that his acceptance of you is not based on how much spiritual fruit you show. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on what you've accomplished. It's based on Christ's finished work. And then as you rest there, you will start to bear spiritual fruit. The irony of the Christian life is that the only ones who get better in the Christian life are those who recognize that their acceptance before God is not conditioned on their getting better. You believe it is finished once to escape the penalty of sin. Now you believe it again and again and again and again to escape the power of sin. You don't escape it through the works of the law. You don't escape it by resolution. You don't escape it by learning doctrine. You don't escape it through anything except for resting in the finished work of Christ because that is where the power of healing flows from. In the words of those modern day musical prophets, journey, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing, hold on to that, it is finished feeling or something like that, the lyrics go, whatever. Um, in verse six, Paul now compares it to the experience of one of the most famous Old Testament people, Abraham. He says, just like Abraham. Then he quotes Genesis 15, six. Um, this is a quote here. Uh, like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. All right, Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham that from him would come a great nation that would provide forgiveness and salvation for the world. The problem when Abraham gets this promise is that Abraham is old and he's childless and, and he's given up, long given up child, um, thoughts of having a child. When Abraham believed God's promise, however, two things, two things happen. Number one, he was declared righteous, it tells us. His faith was credited, in Greek that word is logizomai, and what it means is literally reckoned or credited. Uh, think of it like a check. Uh, you millennials know what a check is? Um, back in the old days, you could take a piece of paper and you could actually write somebody's name on it and an amount of money, you give it to them and they could take it to the bank. Now that check wasn't actual money, but it represented money that they could just present to the bank and say, this person owes me that amount of money. This is what you did before you just had mom and dad's credit card everywhere. All right, but um, so a check. The check wasn't actually money, but it was reckoned as money. All right, faith in Jesus, faith that Jesus paid our sin debt in full on the cross is like the check that is counted as Christ's righteousness, whereby the riches of Christ's righteousness are applied to our account. So when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him. He was reckoned to be righteous, even though in his account, he had no righteousness. Christ's righteousness was applied to him. Second, when Abraham believed, number two, his dead sterile body was given the ability to reproduce. When God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham was an octogenarian married to another octogenarian and they had no kids. By that point, usually um, most people mercifully have given up on trying to have kids. 
But even though God's promise defied everything Abraham felt in his heart to be true, even though nothing in his body, nothing in his experience corresponded to the promise of God, he against all reasonability trusted that what God said was true was true. And when he did, God gave his old, dead, sterile body the ability to reproduce. In the same way, Paul says, when we believe Jesus' statement from the cross that it is finished, even though we feel condemned and feel spiritually lifeless, in that moment, God imparts to us resurrection life, and he puts into our old, dead, wretched, sin-sick spiritual hearts the power of his spirit. How did you start? You started by trusting it was finished. How do you continue? You continue to believe it is finished. The power of the spirit is not learned in a sermon. It is not acquired through doctrinal knowledge. It is not from a list of to-do things. It is acquired simply by believing that Jesus did everything he said he did, and then when he said it is finished, it really was finished. That's how it works. For Abraham, that's how he says it's going to work for you. The interesting little thing here that, that God did to symbolize this in Abraham's life. Shortly after Abraham believed the promise, God changed Abram's name. His name was Abram, A-B, in English we'd spell it A-B-R-A-M. Changed it to Abraham. Put a little H-A in there. Um, uh, I heard one Bible teacher explain that ha is the sound you make for breath. You know, when you breathe in, ha. So um, in Hebrew, the word for breath is the same word for spirit. So this name change was symbolic of God putting his spirit into Abraham to give him life. Then he went from Abram to Abraham. Now, I'm not exactly sure that's what God had in mind when he did this, but I think that's a cool thought. So I have officially changed my name to Jehadi, uh, if you want to call me that from now on, okay? A um, few years later after this, at the ages of 99 and 90, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a son. And that son would father a nation who would bring Jesus into the world. And Jesus would provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believed through his death and resurrection, just like God promised. Paul then asked the Galatians, what part of this exactly did Abraham accomplish by his own strength? Was it some technique or new way of positive thinking that infused fertility into Abraham's sterile body? Was that it? No, it was all God. All Abraham did was believe what God promised, and he kept believing it. If that's so, if that's so, Paul says, then why would we think, why would we think that we could achieve spiritual life, which is even more difficult than giving physical life to an old man? Why would we think we could achieve spiritual life by our own strength through obedience to the law? If we started in the spirit through faith in the gospel, do we really feel like we're going to finish in the flesh through obedience to the law? If Jesus could have saved us by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, that would have been the way of salvation. But salvation was we could not do that. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he continues to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, which is to produce spiritual life in you. In fact, Paul points out that when God made the promise to Abraham, he had, Israel hadn't even been given the law yet. They haven't even initiated the covenant of circumcision. Look at verse 17. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, hadn't invalidated a covenant previously established by God or thus cancel the promise. Obedience to the law, in other words, can't be a condition for obtaining the promise. It wasn't even around yet. If it weren't for 430 years, they would get all this stuff. So if it's not even around yet, how could obedience to the law be a way of getting you close to God? Abraham just believed the promise and it was credited to him for righteousness and he received life in his heart. Righteousness and spiritual life are given to all who simply believe the promise of Jesus that it is finished just like he said. Summit family, this is the kind of spiritual power that many of you are missing. 
It is the kind of spiritual power you need in your marriages. It is the kind of spiritual power you need in your singleness. You need it to overcome temptation. You need it to draw closer to God. And the only way that you get it is by believing the promise that it is finished. It is finished is not just the way we obtain forgiveness for the past. It is finished is the way we obtain power in the present. The first time you believe that it's finished, it released you from the penalty of sin. As you continue to believe it, it releases you from the power of sin. This is what the hymn writer was talking about when he said he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. We sang that as a kid. I never knew what it meant. Canceled sin means that Jesus' death has canceled the debt of sin against me. But as you often know, I am still underneath the control of its power. And so as I continue to believe it is finished, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Just like he canceled my sin debt, he breaks its power over me through faith in the death of Christ. So that the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live how? By faith in the Son of God. I am not looking to myself to correct my problems. I'm not trying to correct them in my kids. I'm not trying to correct them in you. Because what Jesus did, he alone can do. And so it is faith in the gospel that releases spiritual power, that and nothing else. The Galatian error was that after they had started through faith in the gospel, they thought they would be perfected or they would thought they would come to maturity by the power of the flesh through obedience to certain laws or circumcision or obedience to dietary restrictions or whatever. Now, the very first week of this series, I pointed out to you that those are not the same things that we usually turn to. Right? And so what I gave you was a number of laws, modern day laws that we turn to. We don't turn to the same thing they turned to in the first century. None of you were like, hey, how about circumcision? And how about avoiding pork and that kind of stuff? Um, you don't do that. You turn to a different set of laws to try to perfect yourselves. So I gave you just real quick, a few weeks ago, I gave you how different denominations, depending on how you're raised, what laws they tend to point you to. So if you were from a, for example, liturgical background or let's say Catholic background, then it was ceremonies and sacraments and, and the Eucharist and baptism and confirmation. Salvation was faith in Christ plus all those things. If you do this and this, this plus the finished work of Christ is what will bring you closer to God. If you grew up in a, in a Baptist um, context, as I did, then the tendency for, was probably to put all the emphasis on the rules. Here's what Christians look like. Here's what they talk like. Here's what they don't listen to. Here's what kind of movies they don't watch. Here is what they, here's everything about them. Um, and in these traditions, the definition of Christian was always really, really narrow. It was only if you conform exactly, not just to faith in Christ, but also to our narrow definition of what a Christian talks like, looks like, what they believe. And only if you do that are you considered a real Christian. And that's because the emphasis was all on external conformity. But it is not the law that can change us. It is not conformity to anything that can change us. Not any of that can produce a single ounce of spiritual life in me. Most liberal churches put emphasis on certain social justice rules. Now, the way you become a real Christian is by adopting certain societal agendas. And hear me, some of the agendas they put forward are good. But the emphasis is all on what you are to do rather than on the power of the Spirit released through faith in the gospel. It's just a new progressive version of the law. Do this and you will live. The focus that you leave these churches with is on a list of things we are to do rather than on the power released through faith in what Christ has done. There is no version of the law, whether it's Jewish or whether it's Catholic or whether it's Baptist or whether it's progressive that can save you. We mega churches, 
and we hate those guys, right? We tend to put um, emphasis on our own set of laws. Now, what are we known for? What are megachurches known for? Practicality, right? Now, we make Christianity practical and we give you life principles, practical applications of faith. So we're always talking about three ways to change your marriage and four ways to be an amazing dog owner or whatever the list for the week is. And um, I love practicality, okay? This is sort of my nature. I like giving people lists and I, I, I get it. But we cannot, listen, you cannot and you will not grow through the law. No matter what the law sounds like, no matter if I tell funny illustrations with the law or really applicable versions of the law, we grow only as the Spirit's power is released in us through continued faith in Christ's finished work. By the way, next week, I will explain to you what the purpose of the law is. That's what the last half of Galatians 3 is about. But for now, Paul is pointing us to a power that cannot be accessed through the law. It is only accessed through faith in the gospel. And by the way, please note that when I talk about finding freedom from the law, I'm not, listen to this, I'm not talking about simply dumbing down the law. Joyce Meyer, I listen to her on the radio sometimes. She said not too long ago, she said, and I quote, I finally realized that the gospel is not about rules. All right, so far so good. It's about loving God and loving each other. So what have you done this week to help out somebody you know? Oh, I've gotten freedom from the rules and now I just have to love God and love people? As if that is any easier? Love God and love each other is what Jesus said was the summary of the law. I'm in big trouble if that's what the gospel is. With all due respect, just love God and love people is not the gospel. It is the very essence of the law that we have grievously failed to keep. The gospel is not love God and do your best. The gospel is that you did your best and it wasn't enough. So God in his love sent his best who did for you what you could not do for yourself. And all you can do now is receive it by faith. And that's where the power is, not in some resolution to love God and love people. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 1950s-ish British pastor, talked about a controversy that was raging in his day between, um, I'll use modern terms, but uh, a seeker-sensitive church and um, a more doctrinal church. And he said, the argument goes like this, should we focus in our messages more on practicality, like here's how to live it out, or should we focus more on teaching doctrine? He said in the secret sensitive churches, want you to make it relevant and the doctrinal churches want you to make it deep. He said, I would very, you know, humbly say to them that both of those are in error. He said, because the goal of a motivational speech is that you leave with action steps, not a sermon. The goal of um, a, a lecture in seminary is that you leave with a page full of notes, doctrinal notes. The goal of a gospel sermon is not that you leave with a page full of action steps or leave with a page full of notes. The goal of a gospel sermon is that you leave worshiping. At some point, the pen has to go down and the eyes have to go upward. And you have to stop saying, oh my God, look at all these things I've got to do for you. And you start to say, oh my God, look at all these things that you have done for me. Because as you are amazed with the beauty of what God has done, what God does, listen to this, is he will begin to change you on the spot. He doesn't change you because you make a list of things you're going to go do and change. You change on the spot because your soul is captivated with the glory of Jesus. And that changes you at the desire level, which is what God wants. God is not just after obedience. God is after a whole new kind of obedience, an obedience that grows out of desire. An obedience where you obey God because you love God. An obedience where you pursue righteousness because you crave righteousness. 
God could have created robots who would just obey mechanically. He wanted people who would love him like he loves himself and love others the way that he loves them, who would then begin to do it, not based on compulsion, but based on desire. And that is something the law cannot produce. Only the gospel can produce that kind of change in people because it is the very power of new life. I thought of it this week because we're trying to teach my um, son, who is seven years old now, trying to teach him to love to read. And so my son, probably like many of your sons, is not just like, hey, let me see how many books I can read today. So I'm like, what can I give my son motivation to read? And I heard about somebody in our church friend um, who said, well, we use Pokemon cards. So I was like, well, I'll try that. Because uh, my son is into Pokemon cards, even though he's never seen a single Pokemon show and he has no idea what the game is about. Um, but he's like, I love Pokemon cards. And so we go out, I bought him, I think, 10 bucks for 50 of them. And so I'm like, you read for 20 minutes, you get a Pokemon card. So he dutifully goes upstairs, he reads for 20 minutes. In fact, he's stringing together sets of 20 minutes now so that he can just collect these Pokemon cards. Um, first time I gave him one, um, I handed him one and uh, he said, here's your reward. He looks at it, he said, he said, are there any EX cards in that deck? And I was like, what the heck is an EX card? He's like, dad, how can you not know what an EX card is? They're the only good Pokemon cards there are. So I was like, oh, well, sure, I'm sure there are. Just you got to, you know, choose them randomly and there'll be one. So I looked later at the deck. There's no EX cards in there. So I jump online. I'm like, I got to find some EX cards. Well, it turns out they're a lot more expensive. I think it was like 40 bucks for 10 of them. And I'm like, who's coming up with this stuff? They're brilliant. I should have come up with this. But, um, you know, so I'm like, what am I going to do here? So I was like, well, is this a good investment for him learning to read? I guess. So, boom, $40 later, I got 10 EX cards on the way to my house. And now they're mixed in there and I'm giving them out to him. Now, he is reading not for love of reading. He is reading because it's a means to a Pokemon card. Now, I was the same way when I was 7 years old. I was the same way probably when I was 10, 12, 15 years old. But somewhere over that time, I developed a love for reading. So now it's just what I do. I do it in my spare time. Sometimes I'm like, I wish I had two more hours in the day and I wasn't so tired. I'd love to read this book. I just don't have the time. Now, some of you may not share that passion for reading. That's not the point. The point is that at some point you want reading to cease to be a means to an end and you want to become an end in itself. And what God desires for us is not that we obey the law as a way of gaining blessing, not that we obey the law as a way of escaping punishment, not that we obey the law as a way of going to heaven, but we obey God because we love God. And we seek righteousness because we love righteousness. And friend, that's what's wrong with your heart. The problem with your heart is that you don't naturally do that. No obedience to the law is going to fix that. I'm going to explain this next week, but the law is like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks that can point you in the direction you're supposed to go, but they're powerless to move the freight along the tracks. You got a big old locomotive filled with all kinds of freight. The tracks are not going to do anything. They can tell you this is the direction you should go, but it will not move the freight along the tracks. The law cannot move your heart, the needle of your heart to righteousness. What the law can do is tell you what you ought to be like, but only the gospel is the power that moves that locomotive along the tracks. And what the gospel, what the law cannot do, God did in the gospel. Only the spirit released through faith in the gospel has power to change your heart like that. Which is why D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one more time, he said, I spend half my time. I spend half my time telling my congregation to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine isn't enough. Because it is faith in the gospel, not doctrinal knowledge. It changes us. Which means, listen, when you're struggling in your marriage, you don't just need to learn new techniques for being a better husband. The power to really change in marriage, listen, comes not from a relevant list from Uncle JD. The power for change in marriage comes from the finished work of Christ. 
Learning five new steps to being a more thoughtful husband is not nearly as important as being overwhelmed by the 10 billion steps that Jesus took when he came to rescue you. Or when you are struggling as a parent or your kid is struggling with sin and you're like, I can't make them love the right things and I'm trying to control them, but I can't change their heart no matter what I say, no matter what I do, where do I turn? Is your hope to simply get them to conform to the laws? To, to give them the right rewards if they obey, to, to punish them enough and they don't, you can't produce righteousness in their hearts to the law. Now, I'm not saying get rid of discipline. I'll explain again next week how we use the law. But I'm telling you, heart change, heart change, new life only comes from the gospel, which means you need to turn your hope toward the gospel and pray in faith for that power that flows from the finished work of Christ to be released in your life and in their lives. It means when you struggle with sin and you have fallen to that same sin again and again, you've got to look at the finished work of Christ and you got to thank God that his acceptance of you is no longer based on how well you live the Christian life, that it is based on Christ's finished work and thereby receive the power to get up. You got to look up from where you have fallen and realize that Christ, in Christ, the Father has been running towards you already even before you began to repent because he wanted to restore you and bring you home before you even thought to look for him. One of the best descriptions of this I've shared with you, I think, is that strange little verse in Proverbs that is so wonderfully encapsulates the Christian life. Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous man, the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. The way I've explained to you is this, um, imagine being behind a man who fell seven times. What is that experience like? So he falls once and it's kind of funny, right? I mean, if somebody falls in the mall, you're like, <laughs> you know, you pull out your phone, you, 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 he falls a second time. You're like, oh, I got to send this out to somebody. You turn it into a YouTube, put it on the internet. He falls a third time. You start to get worried. You saw a fourth time. He, you call an ambulance. Fifth, sixth, seventh time, you're really worried about the guy. Seven in Hebrew is the number of completion, which means that when somebody falls seven times, listen, their whole life is characterized by falling. Now, I want you to think about that verse again. The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again, which means that the righteous man, listen to this, does not show his righteousness by never falling, which is how I always defined it. He shows, his fall, he shows his righteousness by what he does when he falls. Because the righteous man, watch this, recognizes that his righteousness is no longer based on how well he runs. His righteousness is based on the finished work of Christ. And when he has fallen, Christ still stands. So he shows his belief in the gospel by where he looks when he falls. And when he falls, he looks up and he says, thank God that my acceptance is not based on how well I've run. Thank God it's based on your finished work. I am as perfect in your sight as if I had never sinned because you have become my righteousness. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness right? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Even though I've fallen, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ alone is my hope. And when I have fallen again, I will say his finished work, it is finished and I can get back up. I can get back up because it is no longer me. It is Christ in me. And that race is won. That victory is finished. It is over. And it matters what I'm struggling with or where I've been defeated or where I feel powerless. That victory is mine. I simply believe it and its power flows into me. It is finished is not just a statement you believe one time to escape the penalty of sin. It is finished is a statement you believe repeatedly to gain power over sin. Do you understand that? 
Now, like I alluded to you at the beginning, the first and most important sign, the very first declaration you make that declares you believe it is finished is baptism. Baptism is probably the best picture we have because in baptism, you're actually put under the water like Christ was put into the earth, buried for your sin. And then you come out of the water symbolic of the fact that Jesus was raised to new life, that his death has canceled the penalty of your sin and his resurrection is the power power that will break sin's power over your life. That is an important declaration of faith that releases spiritual power into your life. Y'all, again, the decision to get baptized often makes the difference I have seen between a passing religious phase and a defining moment that transforms your life. And that is in large part because the Holy Spirit takes the confession of faith and he uses it to infuse you with power. So when you say to me, and sometimes you say it verbally and sometimes you just say it with your eyes, well, it's just not that important. Well, first, I always wanna ask people who say that, who are you to tell God which of his commands are not important? Is that really how you wanna begin your walk with Jesus by telling him the things that you're not going to do? Second, I try to tell people, you just don't realize the power of the spirit that comes into you when you declare publicly, I believe it is finished. I was thinking, um, my, my, my dad who now comes, they retired recently and they moved here and they're now a part of our church. My dad um, told me the story that he said, 10 days before you were born, April 21st, 1973. He said, 10 days before you were born, he said, my spiritual life was just sort of right. It was going back and forth. And your mom and I had started to get back in church and we, and we were about to you know, have our first son. And so we wanted to, God to be a part of our lives. He said, but I was just sort of in and out. And he says, it wasn't, you know, nothing was really, really permanent. He said, a guy basically did what I'm about to do with you. And he said, I want you to come forward. I want you to declare publicly your faith. He said, he stood us all up. He said, I literally reached up and I grabbed that seat in front of me and I gripped it until my knuckles were white. Cause I didn't want to do that. Cause that was embarrassing. He said, I was too proud. I didn't want to get out there and nobody watch me and see me. He said, and I stood there and I probably argued with the Holy Spirit for five or six minutes about why I didn't really need to go. I thought I'll just keep growing a little bit closer to God little by little. He says, it's a good thing I was in a Baptist church where we sang 84 verses of just as I am, right? I never made it. <laughs> he said, um, he said and finally, I don't know, somewhere on the 70th verse, he said, I knew, I knew that it was a defining moment for me. He said, I didn't feel like I had the strength to do it. He said, so I just reached out and I stepped out into that aisle. He said, in the moment that I stepped out into the aisle, the Holy Spirit took over. He says, and that transformed my life and changed your eternity because it was a defining moment that changed me, which ultimately one day would change you. You see, some of you are about to have that same moment. And I know you can give me reasons why you don't think it's that important, but this is what the New Testament says that you do, is when you know Jesus and you trust him, you declare it. And some of you have have believed in Jesus and you've never declared it publicly. Now, let me add this, some of you, have never made that decision to follow Jesus and your decision to get baptized is going to be simultaneous with your decision to follow Jesus. That's the New Testament way, by the way. Immediately when you, when you come to Christ, you, you're baptized. I want that to be your moment today where you publicly declare your faith in Christ. Now I know practically people come up with reasons why this is not good, like why I rode with people. Um, they will wait, I promise you they will wait. In fact, you want a little secret, that's why they invited you here today. They knew this was gonna happen and they were like, I'm gonna bring them and to see if it'll take, okay? So that's what they want. They will wait, they will gladly wait. Here's a big one I hear. People say, well, I got baptized as a baby. Do I need to do it again? Listen, I understand. You respect your parents 
and you do not want your parents to feel like you are rejecting your heritage. I, I, I totally get that. What I encourage you to, to think about though is this, listen, do not see this as a repudiation of your parents' faith. In fact, see it as a fulfillment of their faith. Because when they baptized you, when you were a baby, what they were saying is, I hope one day my son or daughter grows up to follow Jesus. And now you are, that's everything they hope for. But see, baptism in the New Testament is always a public declaration of your faith. So what we're giving you a chance to do is to ratify what your parents did when you had no choice, to ratify it with your own choice, to add your faith to theirs and make it something that is a testimony in your day, not just their day. Do not see it as a repudiation of their faith. See it as a fulfillment of their faith. You're gonna to get to call your mom or dad after this is over. And you're gonna say, mom or dad, that hope you expressed for me when I was baptized as a baby, it has come true and I am following Jesus. And I ratified that today. Every single time in scripture, we see baptism. It happens after a profession of faith, never before. Acts chapter two, 3,000 believed and were baptized. Acts four, 5,000 believed and were baptized. Acts chapter eight, the Ethiopian eunuch believed and said, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip answered him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Not a single time in scripture do we see baptism done to somebody who doesn't yet have faith. So you need to profess faith in Christ yourself and be baptized as a symbol of that. People say, well, it's gonna mess up my hair. It's gonna mess up my makeup. It doesn't look that good anyway, be honest, okay? <laughs> and last week, last week I talked and you nodded your head and said, amen, about finding your identity in Christ and not in how you look. All right, so this is a chance for you to apply that right here today. We got everything you'll need, changes of clothes, everything you need to dry off. The point is you need to stop putting it off. You're like, well, I'm not saying no, I'm just saying not yet. Listen, it is disobedience for you to put off to tomorrow what God has told you to do today. It's disobedience. This is a defining moment. It will change your future and you need to act on it, okay? So I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna invite those of you who never received Christ to do that right now in this moment. And then at all campuses, I'm gonna stand us up and we're gonna put people in the aisles all the way down the front at every campus. In fact, I'm gonna ask them to get in place now. And what you're gonna do when I stand you up is you're just gonna move out into the aisle and you're gonna begin a conversation. For many of you, it will end in baptism, but for right now, just think of it as a conversation you're gonna go have where you're gonna answer any, they're gonna answer any questions you have and, and we can talk with you about it. So when we stand you up, I want you to step out and we'll take it over from there. You step out, we'll find you, we'll have that conversation. And um, if you're ready, then we will, we'll, we'll baptize you, okay? Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses, bow your heads. If you have never trusted Christ personally as your savior, or you're not sure that you have, then right now, you could say to him something like this. From your heart, you can use these words. Jesus, I receive you as my savior. I surrender, I surrender. And I will follow you. I trust you as my salvation. Now, if you've never been baptized, whether you just prayed that prayer just now, or whether you prayed it a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. If you need to be baptized, I want you to say, Jesus, will you give me the strength to come? When JD tells me to come, will you give me the strength to just obey the voice of your spirit? Father, I pray for the culmination of what you've been doing in these friends' hearts for a while now, I pray that you would move them in this moment to a defining moment. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna tell you to stand up in just a second. And in one motion, don't wait, just in one motion, you're gonna stand and you're gonna move to the aisle at whatever campus, move to the aisle, the closest one to you. Somebody will meet you there and they'll take you to a place where we can have this conversation, okay? If you're like, I don't wanna come by myself, grab the person next to you. Um, whether you know them or they just look friendly, just grab them and say, let's just go, okay? Um, it's time, all right? So in one motion, when I count to three, we're gonna stand up, every campus, stand and step. You ready? So we're gonna do what we always do. We're gonna put our hands together and really celebrate those who are making this decision today and those who already have, all right? One, two, three. Stand to your feet, let's put our hands together. You come right now at whatever campus. Just step out into the aisle. Don't wait, they'll move, they'll move. And just step out and you come, you come.